time in Acts 17. And our goal is going to be to see how Paul approaches uh, a certain group of people with the gospel. And the goal, perhaps, would be for us to better learn how we can approach those same people with the gospel as we reach out to take the Great Commission or the gospel to the world around us. Let's go. Oh, yeah, we have handouts. Thank you very much. I made some notes at the last minute, so. I will give you, while those are being handed out, I'll give you an overview of where we're going to go the next three weeks. So, as you look through the book of Acts, especially chapters 17, 18, and then the first part of 19, uh, I titled the series Go with Paul. Go with Paul. The first week, what we're going to do is. We're going to make observations from the passage. I've been teaching a class on Bible study this week where we look at the passage, we look at the text, we try to study and observe things. And there are a couple in the room who are very well trained at this. I had to deal with one of them this week. I won't tell you who. Their name does start with M uh, and ends with Irium. And so anyways, it was a challenge. It was a, it was a great task and trial for my life, but I've, I've made it through that and uh, had to give her some guff. Um, but we're going to look through it And Paul is going to go to five different locations in the three chapters we're going to be covering. He's going to be on his second missionary journey, and the very last church we look at, it's going to be part of the second and part of the third missionary journey. As he goes location to location, you're going to notice some trends and consistencies and similarities. So in my study, I think we're going to look at it in three different ways. For, for, well, we're going to look at it in two different ways, and then the third week we'll do something different. So this week, we want to learn to go with Paul as he takes the gospel to the religious people of his day. We want to go with Paul as, we, as he takes the gospel to the religious of the day. Next week, we're going to watch and we're going to learn how to go with Paul as he takes the gospel to... I'm not totally certain what I'm going to call it. I'm going to, for now, call it the spiritual people. The problem is... Religious doesn't mean what we think today, and spiritual doesn't mean what we think today. I'm ju- essentially, I mean, this week he's taking the gospel to the Jews, and next week he's going to take the gospel to the Greeks. I wanted to say pagans, <laughs> but that sounds pretty but they're harsh, but they were pagans. I mean, they were literally at the place that had the hill of Pagus, the Areopagus. The difference, though, is that the Jews have a biblical worldview. They understand what the text says. They know what the Torah says. They understand creation and how the world is. But they're wrong on how they get right with their creator. And so Paul approaches those religious types in one way. When he goes to Athens in chapter 17, uh, middle to end of it, he's actually going to talk to not just Jews, but he's also going to go to Greeks out in the marketplace in Athens. And we'll save that for next week. But all of those Greeks and pagans were very spiritual. They, they weren't like atheists. They had spiritual beliefs. So we're going to say this week it's the religious people. Next week Paul goes to the spiritual people. And then our third week together, we're going to go with Paul to understand unbelief. To understand unbelief. And this is less of a location that we're going in, more of a, I'm going to go with Paul's understanding of unbelief. We're going to go to Romans chapter 1, that final week, and understand what does Paul teach about people who would say there's no God? How would he understand those people? We'll also be looking at a couple of places in the Psalms, and we're going to talk about atheism. So if you're trying to get to know your neighbors, you're trying to reach out into your community, you may encounter any of these three kind of people, and you, you wouldn't approach them all the same exact way. It's the same gospel message, but the way I talk to them might be a little bit different. So this week, let's go ahead and look at Paul going to the religious people. Now, first thing in your notes there, you're going to, I don't think I have the, is there like a PowerPointy kind of a thingy? Or do I just tell you, oh no, I have my notes, I just meant like to change the, okay. Or you can just go to the next slide actually if you want, you just want to press advance, that'll be fine. Oh, there we go, now it's up. Here's our method. Here's how we're going to do things. Each location, we're going to look at these four 
aspects of what happens. So the first thing we're going to do is say, who's the audience? Who's the audience? And this week, the audience is always going to be religious, but those religious people aren't always Jews, you'll note. Then we're going to look at the key events in each location. There's a lot that happens in these locations. We'll point out what we want to for our study. That doesn't mean I'm trying to ignore parts of the Bible. I'm I'm trying to pick up on the key events, but we only have so much time, and mercifully so. Otherwise, we're not going to get to eat, and we're Baptists. I don't think we can do that. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the responses. In each location... Luke is careful to point out how the people that Paul was going to responded. There's some important lessons there for us. Think about the times you've tried to share the gospel with your neighbors, your co-workers, or people you encounter, and it went a certain way, and then you decided whether you're going to do that again or not. I would take a guess, a gander, I'd wager, well, I'm a Baptist, so I wouldn't wager, but I have an idea that sometimes the thing that stops us from sharing the gospel is that there's not a believing response, and so we think we failed. But Paul does not do that. And as you look through the responses, you're going to see that the response doesn't tell Paul if he should keep sharing the gospel. He adjusts where and how he shares the gospel based on the response, but he doesn't stop carrying out the Great Commission based on the response. And then lastly, we're going to ask if there's any implications for us today. Now, this has been a really interesting study for me personally. I have two friends, and this will go into the religious, uh, maybe the next slide, this will go into the religious aspect of what I mean today by religious. I have, uh, I'm going to use the term religious for anyone who, cl- who claims the label Christian in our culture today and believes that they're accepted by God, but because of an error in their beliefs, they actually can't truly be a Christian. Now, I'm trying to parallel that with Paul. So Paul's going to talk to these Jews in the synagogues, and they surely believe they've got it all sorted out and they're on the right path. And Paul is going to approach them. You may not have a neighbor, a friend, or a co-worker who's a Jew and follows the Torah today. They, They don't go down to Ben Yeshua... Uh, synagogue or I can't Ben Ben something there's the synagogue down in Des Moines but you probably know someone who would say I'm a Christian but once you get to know them you know that what they believe doesn't match with what the Bible says so I'll give you two personal examples I have an old friend from a previous job and he was baptized as a baby and not just in any church but in the Lutheran church But not even just the Lutheran church, the German Lutheran. Now, that's like the only, that's the only Lutheran church. It came out of Germany. But man, he would say, I was expletive, baptized in the German Lutheran church when I would try to like witness to him. And so it was like uh, unbelievable to him that I would think he wasn't a Christian. He literally lived his life playing in a death metal band and doing drugs and being drunk. His whole, like That's all he ever did. And he'd show up to work and barely do his job. And there, there was no evidence or fruit at all that the guy knew the Lord. But because he had this religious experience and this religious heritage, he thought, I'm fine. I'm okay. Uh, another example, I have another person, which I'll just give you generics about. Um, they, they claim to be a Christian, and so I'd been trying to get to know them over about a decade period of time. And I found out uh, recently that they come out of a Methodist background. They married into a Lutheran context. Neither this person or their spouse is a regular attender of a church. Um, but I, aside from that, I never would have known that they had any Christianity going. Uh, the, the signs they put in their yards for politics, the things they advocate on social media, the way they speak in day-to-day life, nothing about them made me think they're a Christian. But then they would tell me about serving in church and things that sounded kind of Christian-y. Recently, they saw something I posted online about a book about Jesus and the Gospels, and they said, that sounds interesting, and they bought the book on my recommendation uh, on social media. And then I'm talking to the person later, and they said, yeah, I got that book you posted. And it was like a book on textual criticism and underlying Greek texts and Gnosticism. I'm like, I mean, this person reads a lot, but not that kind of stuff. It's like 
novels and things. And so I'm chit-chatting with the person, and they said, yeah, but that's going to bring up some of those things that I believe that are kind of weird. Oh, like, what's that? And like, well, I don't think Jesus was actually a human. I think he was just a spirit. He didn't actually, he just kind of appeared, but he's more like a ghost. That was really helpful. Because now I understand they can't be saved. If Jesus didn't have a physical body and wasn't an actual human being, his sacrifice can't be my substitute. And then everything he did was just a big joke. I think that's either Eutychianism or Donatism, or Docetism, excuse me. It's, it's an early church heresy. Oh, that's really helpful for me. Now, why that's so helpful is because today, as we do this study, Paul will help me to understand what's the avenue I need to press forward in as I talk to both of these people as I have opportunity. So, let's go ahead and pray, and then we're just going to we'll read a location at a time, talk about it, read another location, talk about it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, thank you for your word. I don't think, Lord, any of us, if we had not heard about your word or didn't understand, if you asked us, how, would you, how should I reveal myself to people? I don't think any of us would have picked a Bible. We probably would have picked a movie. We probably would have picked something else, a vision, you know, a sign in the sky. But Lord, you chose in your wisdom to give us this book. And it's different, God. It's different than any other book. You superintended it through your Holy Spirit. You, 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 you were hovering over it as it was written. You actually tell us that this book is your words, God, written by human authors. And we're thankful for that, God. And while we don't understand why you chose to do it this way, we clearly see the wisdom in it, God, as we're studying it today. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Father, to think through these issues in our own life and that this text would, would shape the way we think about this topic of reaching out to the world around us. Father, we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I want to say one more thing I forgot about the religious, the thinking through this material. So here's how I want you to think this through as we walk through it. Uh, it's possible that you uh, have ideas about evangelism. Hey, this is what I ought to do. This is what I shouldn't do. What I want you to do today is I want you to look at the way Paul shares the gospel and I want you to compare that to how you think about sharing the gospel. So what do you think you're supposed to do when you share the gospel? What does it mean to share the gospel? What does it look like? So I want you to compare those two and contrast them. What's similar between you and Paul and what's different? Because maybe, like me, you had some ideas that were wrong. Secondly, uh, what do I believe I need to do? So I want you to ask that question. As you read this and you see what Paul does, what do you think then you need to do? That's the question I'm asking myself. As I read this and I see how Paul did things, what do I now need to do in response or because of this? Thirdly, what is the method I ought to use when I share the gospel? Now this one's a little bit of a broader question, but Paul will give us some input on that. And then, The second big idea is who is God placed in your life who might be a, air quotes, religious person like the people Paul is trying to reach? So take just a moment in your mind, like, who do you know? Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a distant relative. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a friend. Who is someone that you know who would say, I'm religious, or as in, like, I'm a Christian, I know God, but like my Lutheran friend, or like my other friend, as you get to know them, they clearly don't believe what the Bible says. Is there someone like that in your life right now? Don't don't say it out loud, just think for a moment, is there a name that's coming to mind? If so, this, I want this to be personal for you. I want you to be thinking, how can I now go to that person the next time I have opportunity, Or how can I create an opportunity to go to that person? And what can I do the way Paul did to share the gospel? All right, one more thought before we dive in and start studying uh, Thessalonica, the church Thessalonica. The book of Acts is written by a man by the name of Luke. You've heard of the gospel of Luke. He then also writes the book of Acts. And Acts is, I think of it as a history book, but not just the normal history book. I think of it as a theological book history book. Now what I mean by that is Luke didn't choose every single thing that Jesus and Peter and Paul did and write them all down in this book. He had to be choosy because he didn't have like gigantic scrolls. He only had so much 
papyrus to write on or vellum or whatever he was writing on. So he had to make decisions on exactly what he thought you and I needed to know and the early church needed to know. Which means if I see something in the text that comes up over and over and over and over again, I don't think Luke's mind was wandering and he just happened to write that. I think he thought, this is what the church needs to know. So anytime we see repetition, or we see Paul doing something, or something happens, and there's an automatic response or result, this is not simply a record of what happened. I think it's, there's a message, there's a reasoned argument for you and for me. And so we need to pay attention to that. All right, so let's dive in. Let's go ahead and read 17 verses 1 through 9, and now let's look at the church, or at the experience Paul had as he shared the gospel in Thessalonica. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to die and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Pause. If I had said that to a Jewish audience, they would not have they would have heard the word Christ, but they would have heard another word. Now this is a little less like a sermon and more like a class, so I'm going to ask a question. Does anyone know what word they would have thought of when they heard the Greek word Christ? Miriam. Messiah, thank you. You actually heard that this week. You pass the quiz, you can get a you can get a gold star or something like that. All right, they would have heard Messiah because Christos, the Greek word for Christ, means the anointed one who would come and save. So when Paul goes to a synagogue and says, "Hey, you know that Jesus guy who did a bunch of miracles for three years and then he got crucified and he died? He actually rose again. He was the Messiah. The Messiah has come back." that would have been shocking to a Jewish audience because they've been waiting for the Messiah. Now, he didn't just say this anywhere. He said this in a Jewish synagogue. A Jewish synagogue would have been like a, like a, a mini, not a, I want to say a mini temple of the Jews, but they wouldn't have done sacrifices there. It would have been like a mini gathering place for them to gather on the Sabbaths, much like we are here. They would have recited the Torah, they would have read the book of the law, they would have had elders or priests or you know Pharisees or scribes get up and make statements, kind of like sermons. They would have gathered and done those sorts of things that Judaism would have required them to do. So Paul, being a former Pharisee and being a pretty well-known one, if he'd shown up at a synagogue, it would have been pretty easy for him to say, hey, can I, can I say something? Can I, can I talk about something? And they would have been, oh yeah, sure, Paul, go ahead, go ahead. And, and so he would have had the opportunity to speak. All right, so let's go back. So what is the message that he... So who is his audience? Uh, it's, it's the synagogue of the Jews, okay? And so his audience would have primarily been Jewish people. Jewish people. However, mostly it would have been Jews as an audience, but there also would have been some proselytes or converts uh, later in the text, it's going to say that in the response, there were devout Greeks and not a few high-standing women who end up receiving his message and believing. So the synagogue primarily is Jewish, but it also would have been maybe proselytes or converts to Judaism who would have been there. All right, let's, let's go ahead and keep reading and we'll see some of these other key events. Uh, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason. Now, Jason's the house where Paul and Silas were being put, like they were staying there with him. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers, that would have been other Christians, before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have now come here, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying, There's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. 
And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So let's talk about these key events. One moment, got a computer problem. There we go. There was a former faith professor who said, never trust a gadget. It's a good move. All right, key events. Number one in this whole story, one of the biggest, most important key events is this. The going. The going. Who's doing the movement here? Who's who's the one moving? Who's the one traveling? Who's the one going? It's Paul. Paul is the one who goes, and Paul's the believer, and who is it that he's going to? It's the Jews, and those are the unbelievers. I just want to present this as something to pay attention to in the future. Every time in the book of Acts... There might be one that I'm missing. So maybe there's like one example other than this. But almost all the other times, when missions is happening or evangelism is happening, it's the believer who makes the move. The believer is the one who goes to the unbeliever. I don't think I can think of any examples in this book where an unbeliever goes to the believer. Maybe the Ethiopian eunuch... He's reading from Isaiah, and then he, he said, like, what does Philip say to him? Man, do you understand what you're reading? And he's like, how can I if no one, you know, no one explains it to him, and he invites him up on his chariot? So you might think that's like an unbeliever going to the believer, but Philip was still there, and he struck the conversation up. So let's test this. Is there ever an example we find today where unbelievers are the ones coming to believers to hear the gospel? I want to say right now, it's not wrong if that happens. In fact, that's awesome. Praise the Lord for that. But 99% of the time, it's the job of the believer to go. That's why when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says, therefore, go unto all the world. Sometimes we, we kind of think about evangelism and missions and we think, man, I never have gospel opportunities. I haven't had the chance to talk to anyone about Christianity. I haven't had a chance to share the gospel. And we pray, Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. Give me an opportunity to be a testimony for you and, ha- and have a witnessing moment. And then we like sit still and we wait for them to come to us. But that's not the example we see from Paul or anyone else in the book of Acts. It's our job to obey by going. So just planting that seed, let's see, is that true? Is there any other counterexamples we find in the book of Acts? So first key event is the going. Um, That's what Paul... The second key event here is the idea of reasoning. Reasoning. Notice the way Paul interacts with unbelievers here. My Bible says in verse 2 that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. The idea of reason here, it's sort of the word we get our idea of logic from. So there's a thought that there's a discussion going on, you're interacting with someone, and it's not only presenting them with information, It's then finding out what they think and trying to explain and clarify. I think explaining and discussing would be very, very similar to what Paul says here when it says he's reasoning. So I don't think you need to be a logic chopper or a philosophy teacher to be able to go and share the gospel. But it's not just saying, here's what I believe. It's I think it's having conversations and trying to find out what do they think and can I help them to understand what's true? But then it also says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, uh, and and for uh, to rise from the dead. So when he goes to these religious folk, he is trying to help to clarify their thoughts about what Christ, who Christ really was, and why it was necessary for him to die. Now, what you can't the background picture here is like my favorite painting. It's by a guy by the name of Raphael. It's not the Ninja Turtle, okay? He's like an Italian, I think, painter. And it's Paul preaching at Martyrs Hill, which is the center of this section that we're going to talk about next week. But in the painting, Paul has his arms lifted up. It's because that's his main point. He's talking about Jesus who rose from the dead. You're going to notice that Paul's main 
thing he talks about with religious people in this section is who Jesus is and the fact that he raised from the dead. That is the message he's sharing. Now I want to go back to my two personal illustrations. My one friend who's a German Lutheran, I tried to think of ways to share the gospel. This is like two decades ago. And guess what I never thought to bring up and ask him about? What he thinks about Jesus. It would have been trivially easy to be like, hey, you're German Lutheran, so you probably know a lot about like Christians and things like that. Like, what, Who's Jesus in German Lutheranism? Like, It's an information question. He didn't have any shyness about talking about these things. It's not like I would offend him. It's like um, when someone has a giant tattoo and you, you're like, ooh, do I ask him what that means or not? I don't want to offend him. Well, they have a giant tattoo on their arm. They must not care if you see it. <laughs> like, okay. This one guy had a um, lion tattoo with a kink, like a crown on there. And so I immediately thought, oh, maybe this is like some sort of Christian, like Jesus is the king of the Jews, he's the lion of Judah. And uh, so when I asked him about it, he's like, oh man, I'm a Leo. That's like his Sagittarius, or that's like his uh, horoscope sign. Leo the lion, king of the jungle, yeah. I'm like, okay, that's not it. But then I, I said, hey, have you heard about the Jewish version of that? You should, it was like a way to sort of bring up Jesus with this guy. All right, well, with my other friend who they say they're a Christian, they're kind of a Methodist Lutheran themselves. Oh, I should, you know what, I, I have some proving and explaining to do. I need to bring up Jesus and, hey, did you know that I actually think he really was physically a human? Let me show you some verses here. Let me reason, I wouldn't say it like this, but let me reason with that person. That's actually the fundamental point they need to understand. All right, and then thirdly, the third key event here I want to point out, or key idea, is notice what it says. Paul, this is verse 2, went in, and then my Bible says, as was his custom. As was his custom. So this was a normal practice for Paul. He came out of Judaism. He was a Pharisee. And the normal thing for him to do was to go back to those people and try to reach them and explain to them about the truth of who Jesus really was. It was normal for him. Why did Luke point that out? Well, maybe it's just interesting information about Paul. But in every single location we're going to look at, look at, Paul does the same thing. I think Luke wants us to do that too. I think Luke wants us to say, can I reason with someone about Jesus? Could I bring this up and talk to them about the Savior? That's the key thing. That is the fundamental thing they've got to understand. And I think Luke wants us to know that. I think Luke wants us to start that practice ourselves. So, he went. I think we need to go. His method was reasoning, and it was from the scriptures. I think that's what I need to be doing in evangelism and outreach. And then his custom was to go to people about Jesus. I think that's what I need to do. Let's, let's look at the responses now. So we got basically two big responses. Number one, you have people who respond and believe. Some were persuaded, it says in verse 5, or verse 4. And some were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. That surely had to be really encouraging for Paul. He goes and he has a really receptive audience. He shares this. He talks to them about Jesus. And they believe and they join Paul's cause. They join the church. Surely that had to be really, really encouraging for Paul. Now some were persuaded, but some stirred up trouble. What did the Jews do? But the Jews were, and it's fun. Fun is not there. It's interesting that Luke points out that what was it that motivated the Jews to respond the way they did? It says it right there in verse 5. They were jealous. They were jealous. Now, here, here's what I would say. If I walked up to a Jew, and I'm like in this time period, and they've been like opposing Paul, and I said, hey, why are you behaving so jealously? Do you think the Jew would have said, well, I'm jealous because? I think the Jew would have been like, I'm not jealous, I am zealous for Yahweh. I think they would have been like very self-righteous. I think they were blind to their jealousy. So, Paul just sort of expects this. He, he gives uh, this, this, this argument about Jesus. Some people are persuaded, but then some people really oppose him. 
what happens to those who are persuaded? They follow Paul. Now, I want you to really quick think, what do you think it costs those people to follow Paul and become part of the Christian church? Well, this is kind of a family-centric era. You know, like, as the one... As the father goes, so the rest of the family goes. you got like Roman, Mas Maiorum, patriarchy going on. Um, so this might have been very costly for some of these people to join the church. I have friends who are former Catholics. They grew up Catholic. They have like, this one guy had 11 siblings. And when he got saved, he and his young wife, when they told their parents, they all but got shunned from the family. Uh, Roman Catholicism is a very tight-knit, very family-centric belief system. So you have to understand that for the people who believe, they may have some huge obstacles to overcome. So if I'm reasoning with a Catholic, I don't know that I would bring that up right away, but I would expect to be thinking, man, I bet they're understanding the cost right now, and that's probably a big, uh, a big hurdle for them. Imagine if you're dealing with a Mormon. Mormons would say they're Christians, and Mormons would not believe this stuff about Jesus. Do you know what Mormons think about Jesus? Anyone know? You want to shout it out for us? What? What's that? He's a prophet. Yep, yep. He's a created being. Yeah, it's, a, it's Arianism. It's a really big deal. But not only is he son of God, a created being, do you know who his brother is? Satan. Man, that's not orthodox. That's not what the Bible says. So when I work with a Mormon, I'm going to be trying to show from the scriptures that those things are true. But in the back of my mind, do you know what it costs a Mormon to leave the Mormon faith? More than the Catholic. Mormons are ultra-family centric. So there could be a huge cost. Now, what if you don't want to pay that cost? That might be the thing why you don't turn. Uh, But befriend them, keep going. So... It can be a really big cost, and yet look at the response. Some people were willing to give that up, the devout uh, Greeks and some of not a, the few of the influential women. So that was one response. The Jews, however, were jealous, and their jealousy caused, well, in their jealousy, they chose to do some things. What did they do? They literally started a riot. You understand this? Like, they, they were the original riot starters. They started a riot. They went to the house of the guy who's like housing these people, Paul and Silas, and they drag him in front of the authorities. And when all is said and done, Jason, just opening a couch for Paul to sleep on, gets essentially sort of um, arrested in a sense. And then the only way he can leave is if he gives them money. So what, what happens if you get arrested and they don't let you out until you give them money? What do we call that? It's like posting bail. This happened to Jason because Paul shared the gospel with people who opposed the message. Why does Luke point this out? I, th- I think this helps us to understand why sometimes we're hesitant to share the gospel. You can share the gospel with someone who disagrees with you and you may end up facing some suffering. Now, I'm not trying to scare you away and I've never personally suffered for sharing the gospel, but I think if we're looking at our culture today, we're seeing that that's maybe closer than it ever has been. But Paul and Jason and the believers said, you know what? Even if it costs us, we're going to share the gospel. So just a moment privately for yourself, what are some things, don't say this out loud, what are some things that you are maybe scared that you might lose? Think about it. Like, I share the gospel at my, on my job. What are you scared you might lose? Now, you probably won't lose your job. That's, we're not quite there yet. Will you lose some influence? Will the talk around the water cooler be a little more awkward with you around? Will you get invited out less to lunch? Will you not get promoted? Please understand, I think those things are similar to what Jason had to face. Jason just gave Paul a couch to help him out. And the next thing you know, he's essentially getting arrested and essentially having to give some of his own money to get out. But Luke shows that doesn't deter the early church. They keep going. They're actually willing to suffer for their Savior. To me, I think that's something we need to wrestle with. Are we willing to be bold and courageous, not rude? (laughs) This doesn't mean you're rude and sharp 
and self-righteous and arrogant, but are we willing to be humble and gentle and kind, but bold and truthful and share the gospel? Sometimes it's because we haven't really wrestled with the fact that we might have to go through minimal or heavy suffering. Um, Other times, there might be another reason. In the text, Paul was able to reason from the scriptures. Uh, You might be here today and not feel prepared to. You might genuinely want to share the gospel and be more evangelistic, but have you ever stopped to sit down to study these things out and maybe write down a couple of verses? There's a lot of evangelistic resources out there, a lot of tracks you can use, a lot of methods. Um, But maybe that's the next step for you. Maybe you need to get a resource that would walk you through some of the things you could say to someone who has questions about Jesus. I think Luke wanted us to see that. All right. So you had, a, you, had, you had some negative responses. You had some positive responses. I think the implications are we need to be ready to reason and we need to be ready to suffer, if necessary, to share the gospel. All right, so that was, that was um, Thessalonica. That was Thessalonica. Now, let's look at Berea. Let's look at Berea. And the outline's not going to change, just the name. Berea is the next one. Now, this one's better. This one goes better for Paul at first. Verse 10, now the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. Notice that when it got really, really tense, Paul did leave. That's something else to pay attention to. That's a repeated, a repeated uh, consistent thing. He sent away by night to Berea, and when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, it doesn't say here that he reasoned from the scriptures. But I'm pretty sure he does. Because in the last section it said it was his custom. So, he reasons from the scriptures, I would assume. Now, these Jews were, of more, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And what made them noble? Number one, they received the word with all eagerness. And number two, they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as the men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off by way of the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So who's the audience here in Berea? It begins with those in the synagogue. But notice that even as he preaches in the synagogue, there are Greeks present, and even some notable women in the community. So either he's bleeding out into the culture, or there are just some converts there, and they all hear the message. So that's the main audience thing we want to know. What are some key events? All right, number one, these Jews are noble because they listen eagerly, and they confirm scripturally. They listen eagerly, and they confirm scripturally. That actually is a mark that they're more open to the gospel, and that makes them more noble. So that'd be the one key event. Uh, The next key event that I would say is that uh, the Jews come all the way. The Jews literally chase them all the way to the next town. They come from Thessalonica. And what do they do again? They stir up the crowd again. These Jews are so good at starting riots. It's like they've had practice. They, they just are good at this. Um, it says something about a position in a culture that you can only get to happen by starting a riot. It just it, It's interesting. So, yeah, no, you're not picking up anything that I'm saying here. So there's a noble response. And I think that's what, Paul, or what Luke wants us to notice. These Jews were noble, they were humble, and be, they, they, they studied the scriptures primarily. The other Jews were not that way. They would not listen to the scriptures. They didn't verify. They just stirred up uh, problems. So then, let's get to the implications pretty quick on this one. What are some implications? Well, first of all, um, what if you're sharing the gospel with someone and they don't believe you and they're like, I- I'm not going to believe that until I read it myself in the Bible. I would hope that we would look at that and say, awesome, that's a noble response. Let me help you with that. I hope we wouldn't get offended if people kind of look at us and don't believe us. Um, we're, we kind of get 
sometimes I think we get concerned that we'll be misjudged as Christians. There's other groups of Christians who think certain things and we're afraid we'll bear their reputation. And I would say that when we get mislabeled, misrepresented, misunderstood, or misjudged, the thing we need to be concerned about is to continue to clearly share the gospel from the scriptures. And if, if those people who, oh, I follow Jesus, I don't follow you crazies, I just want to know what the Bible says, I wouldn't be offended at them. And I wouldn't hold that against them. I would use that. I would say, awesome, you, you value the Bible? Here, let's look at the Bible. Let's look at it together. But secondly, what if you meet someone who has this kind of a noble response? Man, if, if they're willing to dive into the Bible, what do I need to be prepared to do? i got to be prepared to dive into the Bible too. So I think that's something we learned from this passage. But again, what's going to happen when you do that? The people who oppose are going to continue to oppose. Did Paul stop sharing the gospel in the Great Commission in Thessalonica when he got the riot stirred up? No, he did it to just who he's talking to, but he persisted. All right, now we're going to take a quick pause. In 16, all the way through the end of the chapter 17, verse 16 all the way to the end, Paul now is going to talk about his time in Athens. Athens is Greece, and it's very much like uh, Greco-Roman, as the name suggests. And so here, he's going to do the same thing he always does. He's going to go to the synagogue, and he's going to reason with them. But the whole big point of chapter 17, verses 16 through the end, is how Paul interacts with non-Jewish people, the Greeks or the pagans. We're going to save that whole chunk for next week. We're going to devote our entire time together next week to looking at this section. So we're going to skip that. Let's skip Athens and let's go to Corinth. No, generally you don't want to skip ahead to get to Corinth because Corinth is not a good place. But today, we'll we'll go ahead and do that. All right, chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come to Italy with his wife, Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because they were of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now we've noticed, here's another, who, who's the audience? It's the same, it's primarily the Jews. But there were obviously Greeks present, and so he was trying to reach out to them too. This is the third time we've seen the word reasoned. One time it said it when he was dealing with Athens, and we're assuming it was that way with, with the Bereans. So this is the fourth location in a row that Luke says Paul went there and he reasoned from the scriptures. To me, this is sealing the point that when I take the gospel out, I need to be equipped and ready to open this book and explain it to the religious who think they're okay and think God accepts them, but don't understand what the Word of God really says. That's important. Now notice um, that there's another thing that happens here that I want to point out. Verse 5, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So again, it's Jesus' identity to the Jews. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out the garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And this is a big theological move in the book. Paul persistently tries to go to his own people. And at this point, he's now assuming he's going to primarily be going to the Gentiles. In this passage, though, He's, just, he's going to go to a different house and he's going to keep doing what he's doing, but he's not speaking to the people who were opposed to him any longer. Now that's also a consistent trend. In Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, when he was opposed, what did he do? When it got really bad, he actually left. And in Berea, when it got really bad, he left. In Athens, there's a similar situation And now here in Corinth, it gets really bad, and what does he do? He leaves. So I think this is helpful for you to know. Let's say you've got someone you've tried to interact with, you've tried to share the gospel, it was going okay, and now every time you share it, they're getting more and more agitated with you. What should you do? 
What should you do? It's tough if it's a friend or a family member, if you know you're going to have opportunity in the future, no matter what, maybe you keep going. But I think from God's word, it's okay for you to say, I've tried. I've done a faithful job in sharing the gospel. They have closed their ears. Their heart is stubborn. Their neck is stiff. They don't want to repent or turn. So you know what? I have the liberty to go and try to find someone else who might be more open, who maybe God has right now for me to meet. That's okay. I don't think that's failure. You understand, success at the Great Commission is going and sharing. That is success. The reaping, okay, the reaping and the harvest, that's not in my hand. That's in the hands of the Lord. I need to be faithful to go to the field and to spread the seed. I need to go out and share the gospel. But the harvest, that comes from God. Maybe I haven't had a harvest in a long time. Does that mean I should stop sharing the gospel? No, just the opposite. I just need to keep going. If I'm only motivated by a positive response, it may be more than I am acclimated to American pragmatic definitions of success. Think about the church in America today. If your church numerically grows, there's an automatic assumption that God is blessing. If your church numerically shrinks, there's an automatic suspicion that someone's doing something wrong. And it may be possible that that's happening. But consider if we're a liberal church and we don't really believe what Jesus says, and then someone like Paul comes and teaches us who Jesus really is, and half of us believe the right thing and the other half don't, what if that other half leaves and our church shrinks? Do you understand that our church actually might have been growing? But those who don't believe have left. So you you can't judge this on those standards. I have to say, I'm going to be faithful to God, I'm going to share the gospel, and I'm going to faithfully, continuously do that, whether there's any reaping going on at all. So here, I think you see that. So he leaves in verse 7, and he he goes to this house of a man by the name of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. The house was next door to the synagogue. That's a very convenient location. You know, you get kicked out of your church, so you go to the community center right next door and you keep doing the same thing. Okay, that's that's not bad. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack and harm you, for I have many people who are in this city. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, and they brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now understand, Paul has been so faithful that the Jews have become so fed up that they're going to get the civic authorities involved. And the civic authorities then request that Paul come before them and get into like a court case. And Paul, he's ready to defend and he's willing to go wherever. In this situation, God takes care of him in a unique way. But I simply want to point out that one of the key events here is that Paul gets involved in a civil dispute because he's sharing the gospel. But he doesn't stop. Is it possible that this church might try to reach the surrounding community and perhaps someone in that community would bring some sort of a civic problem or suit or maybe even cause a riot or a disruption for us, for you? That Yeah, that's a possibility. Does that mean you've done something wrong? Have you not been winsome enough? Do you bear that guilt? I would say that this is part and parcel. It goes with the territory of the Great Commission. We should expect this. We should be ready for it. We're not hoping for it. But we should be ready for it. And when it comes, it doesn't mean we've automatically failed or done something wrong and God's judging us. It just means that sinful people who oppose the gospel are doing what sinful people who oppose the gospel do. That's it. That's all it is. This is a war. I think we forget that in America. But it is a war. So uh, they pull him up in verse 14 of chapter 18. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, Hey, well, he didn't say that. If this were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, 
I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, you go see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge in these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the whole tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So here they're trying to oppose Paul, and it doesn't go their way, and then what do they do? They beat Sosthenes up. So it is a little bit dangerous at times sharing the gospel. It can be. It can be. We're very privileged in America to have a lot of freedoms, and I think it'd be very hard for that to happen. But in all of these situations, what's Paul doing? He's reasoning about Jesus from the scriptures. All right, we got one more location. Let's hit it quick. Uh, I don't want those snacks to disappear or anything. Now, what happens is Paul goes back to Antioch, sort of the main hub of the church. He leaves to go to Syria with Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he cut his hair. He had this vow he was under. And then we get to verse 19. That's where we want to point out something. And he comes to Ephesus. This is the fifth location he's sharing the gospel and carrying out the Great Commission. And he left them there, but he himself went into where? You're never going to guess. He went somewhere. The synagogue. Has he ever done this before? And what does he do? He reasoned with the Jews. Probably the same thing. Now, this must have been a pretty good response because it says when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. So he must have really been interested in what he was saying. But even though he was interested, he had to do something else. So he said, on taking leave of them, he says, I will return to you if God wills it. And he set sail from Ephesus. Now at this point, he goes all the way back to Antioch. He stays for a while and that concludes his second missionary journey. When he starts up the third, though, he goes right back to where he was having a good opportunity and a good reception. So, it says he goes back and verse, uh, verse 24 through uh, the end of the chapter has this uh, ex- example of him going and he speaks boldly and he meets Apollos and we'll kind of skip that for now. So, verse, chapter 19, verse 1, it says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. Now remember, he wanted to go back to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, he, he says this thing about, did you get the right spirit baptism? We're just going to skip over this for now because it's not the main thing we're trying to learn about. But there's some spirit baptism stuff you can study there. So verse 8, what's he do? He enters the synagogue and for three months, three months, that's a long time, he spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and he took disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, and all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Greeks and Jews. So what we're going to point out here is he goes to the synagogue again, He has a pretty good reception, and then he faces some stubborn pushback and some obstinate unbelief. And what does he do? He leaves. He leaves. He has the freedom to leave. He goes somewhere else. That is the Lord's responsibility to convert a heart. His responsibility is to share the gospel. And so he goes to this place called the Hall of Tyrannus. Uh, We literally don't know anything about it. I looked up a couple of commentaries. Some people have some ideas. It's somewhere where people would gather and talk. And he brings his disciples with him. And he shares the gospel both with Jews and Greeks, anyone he has opportunity with. And it goes really well. And it says that by the end of two years, all of the residents of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. Now, this is Asia Minor. We're not talking talking like China, Asia. We're talking Asia Minor. Now, there's the story about the sons of Siva. And we're going to skip that too. I just want you to go down to verse uh, 17. After there's this big casting out of these demons and whatnot, Uh, this event where this demon casting out happens, it kind of goes around, and verse 17 says, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Many of those who were believers now came, confessed, and divulged their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and it found it that it was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, that's a lot of money no matter when it is. If you had 50,000 pieces of silver today, you'd be rich. And they took those magic books 
and they burned them all. Notice what the text says next. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All right. I want to, we've kind of hit all this at once, sorry. I want to talk about some implications here from Ephesus. Please notice that when the Bible says the word of God increased, what had just happened? It wasn't that lots of people had gotten saved. It was that Christians saw their sin and turned from it and publicly repented. That's actually the fruit of the Word of God. Whether a lot of people believed or only a few people believed, that, that's not how the Word of God is powerful. That's where like the Bible says that they added to their numbers daily. That's an increase in numbers, and that's a good thing. But the Word of God being powerful has to do with the change in individual lives. What if I measured my success only numerically at my church? What if I only said, man, we doubled our attendance this year, we must be doing good. And what if no one is looking at their life, seeing sins, confessing, and repenting? That wouldn't be a good situation. That wouldn't be growth. That would be numerical addition, which is good. But the Word of God changes lives. That's the fruit. That's the fruit. I sure would hate to think that I failed as a church because my numbers are not growing incrementally like most businesses today. And yet right in front of me, maybe there's a lot of believers who are walking in the Lord and growing in holiness and serving faithfully. Wouldn't it be horrible to think my church was a failure because my numbers weren't growing? But in the text, what is a failure for a Christian? To not go. To not go. Alright, so we have some final takeaways that I want to walk through. Some final takeaways that I want to walk through. Alright, so the first takeaway is this. Going is for you, not them. Going is for you, not them. Believer, it is great if you encounter an unbeliever and they want to ask you a question and they strike up a conversation with you. That is awesome. Like, that's great. Go for that. That's not a, that's not a judgment on you. That's not a punishment. That is great. If you have one of those like, Christian t-shirts with a fish or something and someone asks you about it, don't think like you're cheating. Like, that's great. Awesome. Use every opportunity. But in the Bible, we don't see Paul putting on a robe that says, Jesus is Messiah, ask me about it, and just standing there until someone shows up. It's like that meme where the dude's sitting at the table with the sign, he's got the cup of coffee, and it says something, change my mind. Like, whatever it is, like, like Folgers coffee is the worst, change my mind, or, you know, like, bite, or whatever, it's some political thing. And then you basically just sit there and wait for people to come to you. That's not how this works. Christians are the ones who go. We are the ones who, who, who close the gap distance-wise. So reflect on that this week. Are you going? Has God put you in proximity of an unbeliever and you literally just need to go up and try to figure out how to strike up a conversation about Jesus? What if they say they're Christian? What if they are nominal? What if they, they think they're a Christian and they're not? And they say something about Jesus. Like when my friend said, I don't think that's what Jesus is, I should have been ready with a response or I should have been prepared to set some time aside and try to start a conversation. And you know what I didn't do? I didn't. I didn't go and do that and I should have. That was a failure on my part because I didn't go like Paul. I need to go. So I want you to walk away with the takeaway this week that going is for you, not for them. Uh, Number two... We need to be ready to reason from the Scriptures. We need to be ready to reason from the Scriptures. You don't need to be a systematic theologian who knows all the names of all the heresies of the Christological problems in in time. You don't need to do that. But could you mark your Bible with ten verses that explain who Jesus is all through the Bible? Could you do that? Could you have like a pocket New Testament or like an app on your phone that walks you through these things so at a moment's notice you could pull it out and refer to it in a conversation? 
Could you practice this with a friend in church? I know it sounds like silly and weird, but sometimes you just got to practice saying the words. Um, when I first started speaking, I would, in my room by myself, talk to the wall. And it really helped, because then I know what it sounds like to say these things. Well, that didn't sound good when I said it, you know. But the, sometimes you just have to practice it. This has come home for me, because I've got young kids who aren't saved, and now I'm thinking, well, how am I going to do this? And, man, it's been a long time, so I need to get into this. I need to practice this. All right, thirdly, rightly understand the response. Rightly understand the response. First of all, you can't know what kind of responses are out there if you're not going. There's no way to know how people will respond if you don't go and share the gospel with them. But when they respond, please understand what to do. If they reject you and oppose you and you face suffering because of that, that doesn't mean you're a failure. Being faithful to go is what God wants. But if I go and I try to share the gospel and it's clearly slam door, door slam in my face and I knock again and it slams, man, maybe third or fourth time, maybe I go to the next door. And that's okay. God wants that. That may be God's sovereign plan. All right. So going is for us, not for them. We need to be ready to reason from the scriptures and we need to rightly understand the response. A rejection doesn't mean we failed, but not going does. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we love you. God, thank you for your word, Lord. You're so kind. You're so uh, gentle with us, Lord. You're so faithful and wise. I pray, Lord, that this material in in your word would help us as we reach out to people who know the biblical worldview. Culturally, perhaps they're Christian. Uh, Maybe they just understand how it's always been and they know some things about Christianity, but they don't truly understand, they don't truly believe. I pray, God, that this message would help us to think through what we need to do. And Father, I do pray that this would be a little bit like an assessment tool. A little bit of a help for us looking backwards in time and, and seeing how we have done in the past. And I pray, God, that scary as it is, that we would trust you, God, and be faithful to go to the world. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.